There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast, the only free lunch out there, Greg, other than perhaps asset allocation and diversification. Right on. We have a lot of people asking us about markets these days, which makes sense given the results of 2022. One of the key leading indicators of a potential recession that many economists look at is the yield curve. And Greg, the yield curve, as you know, typically goes up and to the right. Exactly. Meaning that longer term fixed income pays more to investors than shorter term fixed income. But in the last few months, that yield curve has flattened and actually has inverted at times, which is maybe a sign of a recession to come. And who knows if that will actually come to pass, but it is a recession indicator. And it just means that short-term money is paying more than long-term money. So during times like this, we've got investors who are looking for yield alternatives. That is to say that they're looking for other places to be paid than just bond coupons or dividend yields. Is that a fair statement? Totally fair. So to answer some of that, we've got a special guest today. We've got a fellow named Spencer Hillegas who's joining us. Spencer is the CEO and co-founder of Madison Investing. Madison is a real estate investment firm that specializes in real estate syndication. And Spencer, welcome to the Free Lunch Podcast. Yeah, thank you guys. This is a fun topic and a fun time. I'd say very relevant timing, (laughs) given the market context you just shared, Colin. So thank you, Greg. Thank you, Colin, for having me. Oh, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. So first of all, before we dive in, Spencer, just tell us, where are you joining us from today? Not necessarily right next door to you guys, but love this place where we live on this island of Alameda in California. It's actually not a name drop that I would say most people are probably going to get. It's right across from San Francisco. So San Francisco, California. Well, that sounds lovely. I think I speak for Colin when I say, We'd like to be living there as well, but here we are in Calgary, Alberta. So tell us your story, Spencer. How did you end up where you are today? Oh, man. I'll keep it brief and just hit on some milestones, but I'll say as a guy who used to work for my dad's real estate brokerage as a teenager, and also a kid who played in a bunch of punk and metal bands and really thought that business was rather boring, I would say it's just a joy and a confusing one sometimes to wake up every day now and help serve hundreds of passive investors here at Madison Investing. Because now I'm a full-time investor. Prior to that, I was in the tech world. Not surprising probably for folks who are familiar with Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley as as a narrative. So I led big operations teams for five fintech or finance technology companies for 13 years, including probably familiar names like Intuit. I make big books and do a third of the US's annual tax filings every year. And so a bunch of progressive young, earlier stage, very intense, high growth startups. And so that helped prompt me ultimately to want to look to other avenues besides just simply maxing out my 401k every year, my retirement funds. We eventually realized that Jennifer, my co-founder and COO, which is a totally separate podcast, that is all prompting me, that tech career prompted me to go take a look at other ways to invest. And ultimately that's what I wake up every day and just love being able to do is just talk to our passive investors and try to be a soundboard for them, as well as 
find and vet trustworthy operators or people who manage these real estate projects that we focus on, like apartments and self-storage facilities. All just real estate big deals, basically, that people, the regular people with means can come and participate in. And that's what we started doing ourselves first. We started investing our own money in a lot of these deals and built a business around it rather organically. And now we're just basically very blessed and grateful to be doing this in a full-time capacity, particularly during this volatility. It seems to be helping folks now more than ever. It's an interesting move. It sounds like to a lot of people, it would be a dream to land in Silicon Valley and have a high-end tech job. And it seems like you might be too young for this, but back during the tech bubble of 1999-2000, there was this whole debate about old economy, new economy, and how the tech world was the new economy and traditional asset classes and sectors were the old economy. And How'd that work out? <laughs> so you seem to have gone the other way. You've gone from new economy to old economy. So tell us a little bit about what specifically do you focus on in your practice, in your business, and how do you use that to help investors? I'll keep this at the high altitude unless you want to take me down to a level that gets a bit more nerdy in a good way, I think. What we focus on is really de-risking as much as you can. Any investment has risk inherently, of course, but we do all that we can using our experience, including some of the learnings from the tech world that I got doing all the scaling and high growth hiring and building frameworks and all that stuff. Applying that to evaluation and vetting of folks who buy big apartment buildings as an investment in the United States, and even stuff as niche sounding as self-storage facility, the place where you go pay a few bucks a month to put the stuff you don't use very often. <laughs> and so that's the type of stuff that we realized we can invest in and just own a piece of ourselves as opposed because we may not have had $40 million, as most people don't have sitting around, to go buy one of these 200-unit apartment buildings, of course. But I looked at the economics of these things, and frankly, I liked how predictable, as a guy who came from operations, I really appreciated how predictable that these pro formas and these forecasts were, just being able to evaluate it. Because when I got into this, I knew stuff about investing in small properties, like single family, and most people can relate to that. We can identify buying a home. Most of us talk ourselves out of doing and even looking at something bigger than that, guys. And I know you know this, but I think the average person is pretty confused at first. I was when I realized, wait a sec, I can't afford a 200-unit apartment building. But if I have 100 other people and a competent, experienced team that's already done it, and I'm okay with the ego hit of not saying it's solely my building, then I can actually go and put a reasonable amount of investment at the lowest, maybe 25K, not jump change of course, but all the way up to investors who now work with us in our group. It's just a passive investing group. People, they join if they're accredited, and we can go into that a bit further. But in the US, they have this whole eligibility thing based on minimum assets or minimum income. And if they join, they can participate. And we, I fly out to these markets. I vet them because people in our group are just too darn busy being great at what they do. They're making strong income, often dual income households in some cases, or maybe a business owner, third generation entrepreneur, and it's on the other side of the country. So it really runs the gamut, but they are all interested in either typically cash flow, which is one of the first things that attracted me to it coming out of Silicon Valley to your point, Greg, which is W2 income or really good just salary income coming in from myself and Jennifer was serving as well. We had a comfortable life, but that comfortable life did not have a cap on 80 to 100 hours a week 
in office, not including nighttime emails, that I was working full-time building teams in the tech world. So we were like, where is the exit ramp, the off-ramp here from this adventure? And we started ramping up as we now help our investors do in this group, in this business, investing in something where I could put the money in. It's illiquid. And that's part of the risk you take, trusting these people that we have vetted here at Madison Investing ourselves through a period of investing our own money with them first in a five-part framework of vetting. And then they start producing monthly income back over a period of two to five years until the whole thing exits. And then if it goes the way it was planned, then you should be getting a nice sizable check at the back end because you've added value to this big building you bought and you're going to sell it at a profit, but you got checks along the way. And so that's really the benefit of this notion of mailbox money, as corny as that sounds. And I still think that's a bit corny. Really, I just like seeing direct deposits come in that I can track and measure as the operations dude. What's the difference for our listeners between doing that and investing in a real estate investment trust, which is what more people would be familiar with, like a traditional REIT? I encourage folks to also go online and just like, I'm not saying go Google the full answer, but you can nerd out on this stuff so well because there's so many wonderful resources and comparisons with real numbers that people can take a look at too. It comes down to really two things. I would say the REIT you're investing in, and it's going to be like it's a layer between direct ownership. So you're not going to get direct ownership of a piece of real estate. You're going to be investing in this other entity. And as a result, things like the tax treatment are going to be a little different. And then also on the syndication and fund side, more in the world that we deal with, You've got a couple different things that are very compelling, like actually owning, being part of the ownership of this actual asset. This really for this real building that's full of human beings, living their families, living their lives, paying the rents, et cetera. And then basically you're going to get a much more favorable tax picture that I have found in our own situation in terms of being able to benefit from some of the things. My expertise on, I would say the Canadian tax code is not as strong as the US, but I would say at least for the US folks that we've worked with and myself personally, the tax side of it is quite a bit more favorable. Those are the kind of the two, without going further into it, few differences that I typically see. Just as an aside, I think we would find similar tax treatment issues here with direct investment in real estate. You're preaching to the choir a little bit when you talk about real estate syndication, because of course, when we talk about individual investments with our listeners, we talk about, well, you could go buy an individual stock and hope for the best, or you could buy a mutual fund or a exchange-traded fund where you benefit from diversification and by having investments in a wide range of different individual securities. With syndication, do your investors tend to invest in a single property, or do you find they will invest with you across a range of properties to essentially diversify their exposure as well? Oh, this is an interesting and timely topic as well, Greg. I think that the last few years in particular, it's worth noting, there's been a very large increase in continuing so in fund formation. And so what is a fund in this case? You and, and your listeners, of course, are always all familiar with what a fund is from a more traditional investing sense, mutual funds, et cetera. In this context, you would have a pretty reasonable split 50-50 for the deals that we are investing in and the ones that we're sharing with our group where you've got a single property, just call that a syndication, where you've got, call it a 200 unit apartment building sitting in a high growth market. We look at the property, the deal, and most importantly, we look at the who, or also known as the sponsor or the operator that's managing this property. But I bring that up because it's absolutely key to know that you're going to go trust this person 
in this market where you've done the diligence and all that for this one property, because you need it to go well, like you're going to be put in it. So you got a single digit property syndication on one hand, you got a fund on the other. The fund, we're just closing out one right now, has seven different apartment buildings, all of which are 200 units and up. So quite a few folks and very big price tag on these things. High quality buildings. You walk up and say, oh, that's a comfortable place. I'd be more than happy to live. And even more so once the teams that we work with have done their magic on it, putting a new property manager in, et cetera, and doing some renovations. And so that fund has seven properties. All those properties allow to have geographical diversification as well as sources of income and revenue. So you've got two or three properties in, let's say, Atlanta, Georgia. I don't want to name drop too many places here. I don't want to make people's heads spin, but you've got that in a few markets in Florida mixed in through the Southeast. But generally, that's a key call out because geographical diversification helps me sleep at night. And so some investors prefer that baked in. Some investors like to go more for, I would say, the home run scenario or the big win. And that is the key benefit of doing the single asset if you were to compare the two is you've got more upside potential and a little bit more risk, of course, if you go for the single property syndication versus the fund. And on another note, over the years, we've always had many people that say, oh, I'd rather go out and just buy myself a rental property, a rental apartment or a rental house. And with that comes a lot of hassle. Why don't you talk a little bit, because I think you and your partner slash wife have owned individual houses or rental properties, and maybe talk about a little bit of the difference of doing that versus getting into a syndication. Oh, this is near and dear to my heart because it was the best kind of painful learning. (laughs) The best teachers in life often come from tough learnings. And Jennifer and I look back now on a three-phase process, and this is brief, but it didn't feel this clear-cut, nicely packaged in three phases at the time. It felt like a maze trying to figure out and navigate these stages of our investing career before we got this crystal clear investment thesis and business plan now that works for us 37 times over, because that's how many of these large deals that we've done now. And phase one, I was still working full-time, Jennifer working full-time. We bought a local rental here in California, and I'll give you guys the real numbers is $430,000 US. And that is not cheap. That is kind of make your eyes bleed in terms of price point when you buy a duplex in one of the most expensive markets in the country years ago. And so we still own that, produces 200 bucks a month in cash flow, And that's still a miracle here in California. We bought that thing. It has a property manager on it. It still requires management of the manager. As funny as that sounds to exactly your point, Greg, I think we've had to deal with occasional relatively minor stuff, but When you have to hear about stuff from the county or the city or really a number of different issues when the tenant reaches out directly and says, hey, can you fix my fence? These are minor things, but there's still time and they're overhead if you want to use it in business language. And so we're busy. You guys are busy. We're busy. And we have a couple of young kids. We're managing the business, try to do some charitable stuff. We decided at this stage of life, we weren't ready for that. That's why I call rental property ownership semi-passive at best. It's not a condemnation of the entire asset or type of property. It just means it's got to match your stage of life. And so we got up to five of those in phase two. Phase two, we bought five properties in Kansas City, Missouri. We were seeing $60,000 US purchase price for $250 a month in cash flow. That's after everything is paid, loan, taxes, repairs, et cetera. And that's pretty darn good especially when you've used a loan to purchase them. So your only cash outlay was maybe thirteen to $15,000 cash per property. That's 
confusingly low for a purchase price. But even so, those tenants would turn over and those would be vacant maybe once a year, which squashes most of your cash flow and gives you headaches because you have to somehow still manage a manager all those properties eventually at a profit, thankfully. That led us in stumbling into phase three, which was personally investing into these private deals. The legal term would be private placements for the whole category. Most people just call them syndications and funds. And we were like floored in a good way when we put 25K into our first one years ago. And within two and a half years, we had doubled our money. And that was remarkable. I mean, also because of the tax treatment, we didn't have to pay taxes in those early years for any cash flow we got along the way. It was deferred till later. And so there's been a much bigger story since then. I wanted to give some tangible examples from our own journey as to there was a lot of work, same amount of hassle to buy one little property compared to investing in basically sign the documents after doing our diligence. And that's exactly what our investors in Madison lean on us for because they don't have that time to go fly out to these properties and vet these things. But that was our journey on the rentals. Right on. That's key for any of our listeners is we've never poo-pooed the concept of owning rental property, but as you say, at the very best, it's semi-passive and more than likely quite active because, of course, anyone who owns a home knows that that maintenance issues are, you don't want to have to deal with them if that's not your primary source of revenue. Now, one thing in your bio, you've talked about playing financial offense versus defense. What do you mean by that? And how does real estate syndication fit into that strategy? Those are two principles that in our family, not even talking about our business, which it certainly applies there. It started in our family and we reflect and use those as like a guiding light or a true North compass, whatever you want to brand it for how to make big decisions. And we revisit those monthly. And that wasn't always the case. I mean, frankly, they represent two buckets of activities and strategies that we use to add income streams. On the offense side, very brief aside story. Man, when I was growing up and working for my dad's brokerage, single income entrepreneur, real estate broker, I watched him take a very significant downsize to his business because we went through a very tough time. I won't bore everybody with it besides saying that lost a younger brother, parents got divorced, many different other challenging events happened as they tend to in life. His business income from that one income for our whole household just cut dramatically, downsized our lifestyle significantly. That was a tough decade and I was younger, but I lived through that with our family. And it stays with me now as the guy who's helping steer the ship with Jennifer for our own family. So I sat there going, well, how do I build a more of a moat, if you want to call that, like a figurative moat, a way to protect our family financially. So we're never in a circumstance where, God forbid, I get hit by a bus, not to be too grim. Something happens to me or and or Jennifer. So we have income streams that don't rely on me trading my time and my effort for money. And so that's why financial offense means every single month. Now we are looking at our portfolio and we are actively deploying capital toward a goal of a monthly passive income number to complement our active income that comes in from our business and other sources. And so that's the financial offense piece is never stopping and constantly looking to add meaningful distributions and income that flow in every month, regardless of our participation. So our family is taken care of, regardless of my ability to do work. And so the defense, you got to make a shout out to frugality. I mean, we drove used cars and stayed in our first home for nine 
frugality is important. I just want to make note of that because if you're over consumer, that'll bite you. But most importantly, I would say I used to receive bonuses and in my career, for example, salary that was heavily taxed. And I didn't understand that that if you go and find other ways of tax efficient income, you can actually significantly change your picture for how much you keep as opposed to have those same hard-earned dollars go back to the government and do all that stuff the right way, of course, legally and appropriately. But you can add income streams that are far less taxed to your life. And that's really what it's about on the defense front is frugality as well as tax-efficient income streams. We do talk about that as well in other conversations. It's not what you earn, it's what you keep. And tax efficiency is a very significant factor. And real estate is a wonderful way to bring some tax efficiency to your income for sure. Greg, I feel like Spencer and you could have a long conversation about this for a long time because Spencer, Greg's background was in commercial real estate at one point. One of my careers, yes. Yeah. (laughs) And the saying that I've heard Greg say to me for the last 15 or so years is, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. He says it to me over and over to the point where I question if I have a spending problem because he says it to me so many times. But Or he questions whether I'm just becoming senile and I keep repeating myself, not, not remembering that I said it before. Some mentor years ago said that we all only hear every third word. So until someone tells you they're sick of hearing it, just keep saying it over and over. So I think you're on the right track then. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, I know you're pressed for time and we're coming up to our usual time, but talk about the current market environment. So Certainly, the change in the outlook for inflation and interest rates finally starting to move after seemingly decades of being abnormally low. How does the outlook with rising inflation and and rising interest rates, how does that affect your outlook for the market in general and the kinds of deals that you'd be looking at? It's the right questions to be asking, of course. And it's super helpful, by the way, Greg, that you had this background in commercial real estate. We will have to nerd out on that some other time, I think, because <laughs> sure. it's just fun. I think it's confusing and disorienting for most people. If I think about going into the last downturn, 2008, most people don't go beyond the headline and I don't fault them for that. That's where I was at. I mean, I was dumping money into my 401k, celebrating that, going up the ladder of corporate career. Going in this time, I feel armed with a few key assumptions and learnings and principles this time. And so the things I full wholeheartedly believe in is number one, always being investing because deals don't go away. There are just fewer of them, harder to find. And there's no such thing as bad assets. It's really just a matter of assets at the right price. And so like, these are some of the things I wholeheartedly believe now. And so What's the tagline? When folks ask me in our personal network that are not familiar with investing, they really don't think about it that much, but they kind of want to just hear what I have to think about volatility. And I just tell them, well, one of the big changes is that money just got more expensive. And they're like, what do you mean money got more expensive? You can't buy money. I was like, I'm just reframing the way you talk about borrowing, getting loans. And so when the Fed is increasing those rates, Many years ago, I was also one of the many people who thought mortgage rates were the same thing as the federal rate. And frankly, different things, but very closely correlated. And interest rates going up seem to be pricing people like first-time home buyers, unfortunately, further out of their ability to buy. And homes and mortgage payments are getting more expensive. So that's not fun for anybody. But I think in the context, that's so important for everyone to remember. And I need this reminder too, when I pull up the right chart, is that 
we're still at very low rates in the big picture compared to the ones that some folks that we know and have lived through in the 80s. And so taken in context, money is more expensive. Single family home buyers have to pay higher mortgage costs. That said, what's the impact on things that are bigger, such as the apartments? Well, I literally saw data yesterday, fresh data coming out, fascinating stuff. There's been an underbuilding issue in the United States, at least. And that means there's just not enough housing for people who need to be renting. And so people can't buy houses as easily. So you're seeing a jump over to folks who are now renting more. And so the demand for that type of housing continues to be validated far more so than in the 2008 context. This is not a simple, clear-cut story. That 2008 thing was basically based on the practices, and this is the shortest bullet point explanation of 2008 attempt ever, but it's faulty lending practices, giving people loans that they shouldn't have been, and then Wall Street greed, <laughs> packaging those loans for sale time and time again. And so all that to say, interest rates rising is something that people absolutely need to pay attention to. That's the type of data that I study regularly myself for our business and otherwise, but it doesn't mean it's a showstopper for investing. And I really hope that folks take this as a well-intended kick in the butt to go and just dig in and learn and grab the reins of their own financial livelihoods because it's more of a choice. There's no such thing as no one can convince me that it's a good idea to get scared by what's happening in the world and then stop focusing on your financial livelihood. That is just, you got to always be looking and you got to always be studying. Excellent points and an excellent way to wrap up this discussion. We really appreciate your time. And this is a great areas for our listeners to focus about. I hope we get some good feedback and that's great. Thanks for being on our show. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Spencer. (laughs) (laughs) It was a pleasure guys. And I'm looking forward to the next one and hopefully we can get some more time on it next time. But thank you. A wonderful way to start the day. Sounds great. Thanks again. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners. Please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.